This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming only on Hulu. Hello, this is the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that every issue in your social media feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Whitney Terrell, the author of the novel The Good Lieutenant. And I'm Vivi Ganeshananthan, also known as Sugi, author of the novel Brotherless Night. I virtually attended your wedding a little while ago, and it was a Hindu ceremony, which I thought was very cool. Um, But it also made me wonder, are you a practicing Hindu? To what extent was that ceremony like a cultural tradition, and to what extent was it part of your ongoing religious practice? Yeah, it was definitely cultural. I'm not religious. I would identify myself as like a Hindu atheist. Um, what, what about you? What, You've talked about. What are you talking about? What is that? You, you, you can't. Well, you can be culturally Hindu without being someone who necessarily believes. Just like you know, you can find Jewish atheists. Okay. Um, is that all? I- so, what about you? You. I've just recently, you know, I've recently found out that my parents do listen to the podcast pretty faithfully. So I'm trying to be, I don't know, a little nicer about how I talk about religion. But let's just say generally I'm not convinced. By what? By anything. That doesn't mean that I don't think that religion is an important and fascinating topic. Uh, And it is. and, And it has also been a driving force behind our politics and some of our best literature And it's inextricably connected to the way we think about race in America today. And so today we're going to talk to a novelist who has managed to cross all of these streams in a to make a godless Ghostbusters reference in his debut novel. Jeff Boyd is a former public school teacher from Chicago and a recent graduate of the Iowa Writers Workshop, where he received the Dina Davidson Friedman Prize for Fiction. His first novel, The Weight, was just released April 11th from Simon & Schuster. The book is a powerful coming-of-age novel about a 20-something black musician living in predominantly white Portland, Oregon. He plays in a rock band on the verge of success while struggling with racism, romance, and the legacy of his own strict religious upbringing. Jeff, welcome to the show. Hi, Wendy Sugi. Thanks for having me. So in your novel, The Weight, the main character, Julian Strickland, comes from a deeply religious background in Illinois and carries the remains of that upbringing with him to the Pacific Northwest. And he says, and I'm quoting here, the way I grew up, I was a Christian before I was black or American or anything else. So the character doesn't have to have this past. Why did you choose this for him? Well, I mean, I guess there's a couple of reasons. One is I somewhat share that past. So I thought, okay, I can, uh, you know, but I, but I think it's, um, um, I guess just this idea that not only is he leaving um, his home 
he's also kind of leaving his faith in a sense, or at least his strong, strongly held beliefs are kind of shaken. Um, and he did, I guess I, I found it interesting that this, this idea that, um, that he really does take like this idea of like Christian brotherhood or family, uh, to the point that, um, faith or shared religious beliefs in his Christianity was more important in his connection to other people as well than, than race or anything else was. So that's kind of the lens that he viewed his life from. Um, but now that he's kind of, that's been shattered, um, it kind of leaves him in a place where he has to kind of cope with who he is kind of on multiple levels. It's not just uh, racial lines. It's also like kind of that religious line that he's no longer able to um, um, go along with. We have a lot of students. I have I've taught with a lot of students at UMKC here in Missouri who are coming from religious backgrounds, interestingly enough, usually from the Midwest. Um, Julian, uh, the name of the character, the main character, Julian Strickland, uh, reads Baldwin, whose first novel, Go Tell on the Mountain, was about his life in a religious family. We had Monica West on this, on this podcast a while back, uh, and her novel Revival Season was about the same thing. But your narrator has like left that world, so it's not really about living in that world, right? It's about post that world. And yet his Christian past sort of provides this sometimes funny, sometimes weird connection for him with the white world of Portland. Um, can you talk a little bit about that and read to us from the book? Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, he is trying to escape um, that kind of strict religious upbringing he's had. He's kind of trying to, you know, get away from those, I guess, groups of people who, um, you know, ad would identify primarily as uh, Christian and that being like their, you know, main driver. And I think that's also, it kind of complicates it that at work, um, he he's working at a Christian workplace. So unbeknownst to him, you know, and um, I do think that the same thing as kind of growing up a religious, um, that in a church, a lot of the times you're kind of taught that, you know, uh, you know race doesn't really matter. Nothing else matters except for your kind of belief in God and that you're God's child. And I think Julian kind of gets that. So he, he was able to relate to um, his Christian boss and Christian workers um, by saying like, hey, like, I know I'm the only black guy here, but we're all Christians, right? You know, so he, he's, I think he sees that as a tool, one of the tools that he has um, to kind of, um, kind of feel, or at least like the people working with him feel like he belongs, or that he, that he demands respect in the same way they respect the others because they all have, they all have this religious belief. That's really interesting to me because I, and you're going to read this passage, but I just want to respond to that in a second because my, like my dad was very religious. And one of the things that doesn't get talked a lot about when you talk about religion, because very often it's framed in a sort of far right wing way, was that, you know, my dad's primary interracial friendships came through Christianity. Like he was really close friends with Emmanuel Cleaver, who's now the congressional representative um, from our district. But they became friends at the YMCA, you know, and through sort of interfaith organizations, right? And I just thought that was an interesting part of your book that I hadn't seen someone write about before. Yeah, like I, I think I also kind of felt that. And I also feel like that's what people, I do think that kind of somewhat of like Christian goodwill has kind of been hijacked by this kind of very right-wing idea. And there is kind of that uh, beauty that comes from the shared faith and being able to relate to people from across the aisle or different backgrounds because of that kind of shared um, vision of the world and of the afterlife. So I guess I'll read a passage uh, from the book. Um, yes, yeah, so this part, um, so like I said, Julian, um, 
this is the first time we encountered Julian at work and um, he's kind of telling us um, about um, the first time he realized that maybe he shouldn't have taken this job if he's trying to leave his past. And so, yeah. So he's, he's talking to uh, one of his coworkers on a boat um, about whether or not there's going to be drinks on the boat. And uh, after hearing from his coworkers, this is kind of Julian giving us a, a summary of what he, what he learned and then kind of going back into his normal day at work. Um, so turns out everyone else who worked in our office were the guys uh, the boss had met and the Christian AA group he led. Trenton and I had been hired under unique circumstances. Trenton had cold called the boss two years ago to sell him on the high-speed internet business package he was peddling. And the boss had been so blown away by Trenton's skills, he convinced him to join the sales team at Marketing Monkey. My job was the only one the boss had ever put an ad out for. Before this job, I'd only worked in retail. My resume was light. I think he hired me because I graduated from a Christian college. But escaping a Christian environment was part of the reason I'd left Illinois in the first place. I should have quit when we got back to shore. I should have quit the moment I found out the boss had the whole company pray together every Monday. But over a year later, I was still on the job because I couldn't afford to miss a paycheck. I had so much student loan debt that the total balance seemed like an error. My two credit cards were close to maxed out. After Trenton left my cubicle, I spun my chair back to my computer and tried to figure out how I was going to make myself look busy. I scrolled through my work emails looking for something hard to respond to so if the boss walked by my desk and asked what I was doing, I could tell him I was providing customer service. I was the only marketing monkey employee paid hourly. I was the only one who wasn't in sales. I received about three calls an hour. The company's website and email marketing system were built and maintained by an independent contractor. I made $16 an hour with limited benefits, nine to five, Monday through Friday. I answered the phone, reluctantly replied to emails, and co-wrote and edited the boss's weekly newsletter. I thought about the Baldwin I read before work. I thought about what he said about black people being born in the ghetto, destined to die in the ghetto. But that wasn't me. I was born in the suburbs. I was raised to be able uh, to make something of myself. And here I was, making shit pay and being poor. My desk phone lit up right before lunch. The boss said he needed to see me immediately. He reminded me of a megachurch mega youth pastor I used to know especially on Fridays when he wore jeans and shirts that were too tight, distressed, and European for his age, body, and worldview. His thinning hair was meticulously styled and colored. His slang felt forced. He was condescending, loud, self-righteous, muscular only in arms and chest. I walked into his office. Julian, the boss said, my homie, shut the door and sit down. With his hands out of sight, I thought maybe he was holding that handgun I'd heard he kept in a locked desk drawer and that he was deciding whether to pull the trigger. I could never tell what he was thinking and he never let on until he was ready for the reveal. He looked sort of happy to see me, but also like he somehow found out that Trenton and I had pounded vodka energy drinks at the park across the street during lunch break on Monday. Or maybe he caught me staring at his eldest daughter's butt when she came in on Tuesday to surprise him for his birthday. I tried not to look at the framed high school graduation photo sitting on the shelf behind him. Feeling better, he asked. He put his meaty hands on the top of his desk. They were empty. He was a maniac. I sat in the chair across from him. It was a nasty bug, I said, but I'm feeling much better. Thank you so much. Okay, we're going to take a short break here, and we'll be right back.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Julian is reading Baldwin. Um, and one of the great things about Julian is that he is a reader and he's always kind of referencing this mental vocabulary that he has of like, who am I like? Who am I not like? What are my aspirations? He's reading Baldwin, but he knows that he's not exactly like Baldwin. And he's also very different from his boss. But the boss reminds him of a pastor he used to know. So our former professor, uh, Jim McPherson, once wrote about looking for, and I'm quoting here, a model of identity that might help me transcend, at least in my thinking, a provisional or racial identity. How would Julian react to that idea? Yeah, well, I mean, first, um, James L. McPherson was gone by the time I got to Iowa, but his presence looms large, as I want to say. Um, so I appreciate his work and also just how, like, how many people he's, he's touched that I've, that I've met. Um, but I do think, as far as the quote, a model of identity that might help me transcend, at least in my thinking, provisional uh, or racial identity. I do think Julian would, that's kind of what he's searching for. Um, that's part of his journey. Um, and uh, I think that's also kind of related to his loss of the main identity he had, which is, um, you know, his being a, a kind of a, a good Christian with a strong faith and someone who went to church, you know, three days a week. So, I mean, that, that's who he was. So that's, you know, but now he doesn't have that. Um, and he also, I don't think does feel comfortable being seen only as being black so um it's all kind of tied into this idea that he wants to be seen for who he is and i think the idea is like who am i if i want to be seen for who i am then who am i um if he does if he wants to transcend all these things then what is he transcending it with i think that's kind of his his journey here i know you didn't study with jim but you know that 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 line comes from uh an essay called on becoming an american writer and we interviewed um we had a podcast about a, a new a book of essay collections that had that essay in it. Um, and it's also in his book, A Region Not Home. But I felt throughout the book like that that project of trying to invent a new identity, a very American thing, but a very Ellis, Ellisonian and McPhersonian thing, right, is is what the book is really processing. Um, and, you know, the setting has a lot to do with that. You know, Julian has a complicated relationship to Portland, Oregon. He calls the, the neighborhood that he's in uh, a refuge from all things evil and hard, which is, seems nice. Um, but at the same time, he says, you know, everywhere I went, I was the black guy. Um, so what's it like for a character to live in a neighborhood they love, but at the same time feel like they don't belong? Yeah, I think that uh, kind of complicated things for him. I think it also is, is why he stays no matter what happens. I think he's like, well, like this place is great. Like he, on a daily basis, he... Um, you know, there's things that he appreciates about it. He has friends that he appreciates. He has little kind of like-minded uh, people in that sense. Um, but I do think there are times, you know, he's not removed from the world or from the American culture. So um, I think it's hard to kind of, you know, and I've had, I've, I've talked to friends about this too, like even living in Portland, you know, because I did live there and he was <laughs> sitting at a bar. And How long did you live there? Uh, 10 years. Yeah. So I, uh, from uh, like 2006 to 2016, 
Um, and so, yeah, it's like, oh, like, just, you know, like, my white friends, it's like, just imagine if everyone around you, all of a sudden, like, snap your fingers, everyone around you is black. Like, even if you're having the same time you're having, like, you, you, just visually, like, it's just, you can't escape it. You know, it's like, Julian doesn't even, even when he doesn't want to think about being the only black person around, um, it's just natural human being, like, you're, you're going to notice that no one is like you. It's like, you know, it's like when you're trying to play a game with a kid, like, one of these things is not like the other, you have them separate things, like, it's just... Like, it's just your, your mind's going to get drawn to that, at least it's some, sometimes. And um, when that does happen, it's hard for it not to be like, well, why is it this way? Like, since I'm not like everyone else, should I be here? You know, it's like it doesn't, there's, there's this feeling of like un, this unnatural feeling that comes, even if you're having that nice serene time. Like, some, at some point, he's going to open his eyes and look in the room and be like, oh, man, like, I'm the only black guy <laughs> here. Like, and that, that changes the way, you know, you feel like you can... Maybe if you did let your guard down, it almost kind of immediately makes you put your guard back up. It's just kind of a means of survival, I think. As I was reading, I was thinking about AWP in Portland, which was maybe the last time I was there. And my kind of like, it's like, oh, I'm so excited to be here in this progressive place with all of its natural beauty. And also, I mean, exactly what you're describing. And it also, I mean... Whitney, the, the question that you ask, what is it like for a character to live in a neighborhood they love, but where they feel like they don't belong? I feel like it, it could just as easily be, a, I'm, I'm in Minneapolis, Jeff, and it just seems like it, it could also be a very Minnesotan question. Um, so it's, I mean, it's, it's, um, it's something that you portray really beautifully. There's also this really wonderful subplot with Claire and Peter, who are the neighbors who live across the street and have an adopted son who is black named Reggie. And so they, of course, immediately approach Julian and he thinks that they want to be friends at first, but really they just want him to hang out with their kid because he's the other black guy that they know. And that that becomes a really, but that their relationship is complicated. They do things that hurt his feelings, but they also grow and change with him. And I thought that was one of the interesting things about the novel was the way that Julian negotiated complicated relationships. Uh, one single incidence or or. A uh, case of misunderstanding doesn't end his relationship with people. He kinds of tends to work through that. Yeah, yeah, and I think it also I think that also does tie back to the faith thing. Um, you know, he, he I guess he doesn't, he doesn't say it explicitly in the book, but my idea is that he's he kind of feels really does kind of feel like only God can judge. You know, he's not like in the business of judging people for better or worse. I think sometimes that gets him in trouble, and sometimes it you know helps him. So I. Um, and so I think that, that that's kind of related to this uh, relationship that he has with them is that he can see like, okay, like, yeah, like if I had a black kid and I was living in this neighborhood and everyone else around me was white, I might feel like maybe my kid should get to know some other people who, you know, look similar. So he doesn't feel like he's the only black person here. You know, maybe this person can give in. So I think Julian kind of gets that to the extent he does feel kind of hurt by the fact that it doesn't feel like a genuine relationship at first. Um, feels kind of not maybe not transactional, but like these people kind of want something from me, don't want to give me anything back. I think he does feel hurt by that, but I think he also sees that Reggie, um, the character Reggie, who's a adopted 14 year old, um, uh, like I guess well, 13, 14 in, year old in the book, um, that this that Reggie can use his kind of his guidance, and I think Julian can also kind of get something from Reggie. You know, he doesn't have to feel alone when they're the two of them are playing basketball, you know, for instance, they can there's you know, these two black guys kind of there in this world, but they're not alone. Um, and I think it also does, uh, with the with, Kat, with Claire and Peter, um, they, Julian starts to kind of, I guess, I guess they both kind of start to 
influence each other in ways that uh, help them kind of see maybe, um, at least you know, Claire and Peter, the, the bias that they that they hold. I think, but I don't think that they're also naturally. I think that is kind of related to Portland is that a lot of people are liberal and well meaning, but I don't think they get to like practice what that means because they don't have to. You know what I mean? It's, it's like they don't like. It's like they have these great. I'm feelings. theoretically um, well meaning. Yeah, theoretically. Yeah, and I think it's also related to. I mean, this. I think this book kind of takes place before the Black Lives Matter movement, but you know, like a few a year, a few years after this, Julian's going to walk around the street and they're going to have a lot of Black Lives Matter signs on either side. And he's going to say, so you're telling me I matter. Like, thank you. Like, because there's no one else to read that who, you know, I mean, it's just like, it was different than them. Like, it's like a very. So I think that it's also like we have Claire and Peter who do have these kind of well-meaning intentions for their son and for the world. but They never really have to practice it. So they're very that, that being out of practice, you, you kind of see how the, the, the bumps along the way. Can I ask, what did you start writing this book while you lived in Portland, or was it something that you had to begin with a little bit of distance? Yeah, I definitely started it almost as soon as I moved to Chicago. <laughs> <laughs> I moved back to Chicago, and I was like, here we go, you know, let's, what can I write about? I, I feel that what you're describing, there are also, like, and I've written about Kansas City's neighborhoods, and it has a lot of racial segregation, like, so I would jog or ride my bike through what I know to be a very, very white neighborhood. And you see all the Black Lives Matter signs. You're like, who are they saying that to? I guess each other. I don't know. <laughs> you know? Yeah. But if you do it, for instance, in rural, in rural Oregon or rural Minnesota, for instance, that's a real statement. You know, you're, really, yeah. you're standing up against people who do not feel the same way as you, even if they look the same. So I think that's, yeah, I think that's also, yeah, kind of the feeling is that these, you know, I guess we'll probably talk more about this, but it's a place where people do kind of hold a lot of strong um, kind of liberal uh, beliefs, um, but since it doesn't come to their life or come to their you know, practice, they don't have to contend with it until they have to deal, in this case, have to deal with Julian. You know. So, Jeff, you open the novel with a quote from the 1857 Oregon Constitution that says, and here's the quote, no free Negro shall ever come, trade, reside, or be within this state, or hold any real estate. So, this seems even more extreme than the racial covenants that Whitney has written about in Kansas City, which prevented black Americans from owning property in certain neighborhoods. So how did Oregon go from that kind of maximalist racism to being a reliably, quote, woke democratic state? Or, or has it really changed? Yeah. Um, well, I, I do think it's changed quite a bit, at least as far as their laws are concerned. I mean, they, uh, I think the last um, uh, law um, excluding blacks from uh, Oregon was, wasn't repealed like officially until 1926. Um, so it is kind of like a recent history. Um, and I think maybe what has, um, or especially Portland, how Portland has changed is that the reason that I, and I guess my, the reason that I, I have that quote, or I know it so readily, is because when I was a uh, a teacher, like I taught language arts and like uh, social studies, like that's like in our public school curriculum. Like we're like you know like you know I guess it's one of the reasons people try to fight the woke place. It's like we we they do try to teach kids the history of the place that they're living in, trying to understand this place used to be very you know excluding to to different groups. You know we had this this laws in the books. And so I think that that also kind of helped the shift, like I said, so where people can say, okay, like, I understand that this is the way this community used to be, like, um, 
Yeah, but it has changed a lot. I think it's just like it's just like any other place. Portland's a, a big a big liberal city, and so that and the surrounding areas kind of also have taken that on. That yeah, those understandings. So, I just referenced Oregon is reliably woke, but so seventy four percent of the population is white and under six percent is black. And the more rural eastern part of the state has been home to a number of white supremacy groups. So what's your take on that? Is 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 Oregon reliably blue or is there a chance that it turns out to be, um, dear God, I'm so disappointed in Iowa. Um, it turns out to be an Iowa or Missouri states that were once reliably democratic but turn deep red? Yeah. So like I said, having lived in, um, in Illinois, I feel like it's kind of similar in that sense. Like the city is what makes it liberal. Um, in the in the suburbs, um, and I do think that for the most part, Portland and the surrounding areas takes a big enough portion of the population where hopefully, oh, well, to me anyway, hopefully it'll stay um, uh, democratic. Um, but I do think they see you see them pushing up against each other a lot more now. You see a lot of like maybe those those rural groups coming into Portland like kind of to assert themselves because that really is kind of where the fight is. You know, I mean. Because it's such a stronghold of the woke liberal idea, like that's you know that that's in Portland. So, you know, I think that's why you have the Proud Boys and all those people also trying to come in and fight because they're not gonna they want to do that where they live. Like people are gonna just say, yeah, we agree with you, but it's not gonna make a change. So I do think Portland kind of becomes this hotbed where a lot of issues are kind of um, wrestled with. Um, but I but I think the reason that that happens there is because it does have such a stronghold. I don't think that'll knock on wood. I don't I think. Portland should stay reliably democratic for quite a while. We're going to need those votes, I'm telling you. Um, all right. Can we talk about the band? I was in a band. Sugi used to be in a band or, and is about to join another. This is new, Sugi. I thought you were still in a band. What happened to your band? The pandemic killed my band. Oh, I'm sorry. It was That was <laughs> the Sun Ra band? Yes, it was. Yeah. Fun, yeah. Damn it. Sad. How can a band like that die? <laughs> Sounds nice. Yeah. Were you in a band, Jeff? Um, yeah. Um, I did. Like I, I played in church too, so I I played the bass mostly. Um so yeah, I mean Portland that was my first big kind of um connection. You know, and I think that's also what I why I give that to Julian. Um, because it is kind of like a um like a grounding uh, I don't know. Let <laughs> me start from the uh, What am I saying? No, I mean, the within the band friendships are great. I That's what, you know, I mean, I, some of my sweetest moments of of high school for me was when I was in this band were the time that I spent with my bandmates who were still my friends, you know, and the goofy shit that we would talk about and do with each other and the way we had to deal with each other's foibles and not wanting to carry this amp and not showing up on time for practice. I mean, all those things are... It's a, you know, it's a, it's beautiful, yeah. I think, in the way that he develops connections with those guys. Did you have a similar relationships with your bandmates? Um, yeah, I did. No, I think that my bands, like, especially the band that I, that I played in the longest in Portland, like, you know, we, we, we would go on North American tours for like two months. You know, like after you do that, like you are, you know, your brothers for life. And I think and I am, you know, I do feel that way about those guys. Like we are. Um, yeah, they're like, they're like, even when I don't talk to them, they're like the family, like they're like the brother that I don't call, you know, it's like, I should call him, you know, it's for, you know, it's my brother, you know, it's like a, uh, yeah, it's just such a strong connection that you kind of get from growing up and having the same goal. Like you want to make good music. You want to like express yourself. 
you know, especially for me growing like back then, like a job was just secondary to like having enough money to pay rent and be able to go to the bar and be able to play music. You know, like that's like that was the goal. Like the the art was the goal, and everything around it is just survival. And I think, which especially when you're in a group of people who feel the same way, like it's almost, yeah. I mean, you're either gonna hate each other, or love each other, but you're not gonna be neutral about about those people. I was reading and remembering all of the bands in which I had been the only woman, which was a lot of them. And um, I'm also, so Julian ends up, Julian's a drummer. Yeah. Why? <laughs> I, I've always liked the drums. I always wish I knew how to play the drums. And one of my, be, my best, yeah, and my best friend is a drummer. And to tell you the truth, I was like, I'm going to make this guy a drummer. And he's like, no, you're not. And I was like, you just watch me. You know, it's like, I, it's like, you know, so I think it's, uh, it's almost like a bass a rhythm section, uh, you know, not inside, it's, you know, it's more than that, but it's just like, uh, I feel like I can understand the mind of a drummer just by having like sat, st- stood so close, uh, to watch, you know, the watch the kick drum and the snare and like, you know, just like, a like, I feel like I understand them. So I was like a, a drummer just felt, felt, and it felt like kind of the most earthy thing. Like it doesn't require, um amplification I thought about like it's just kind of this kind of I felt the most I don't know the drums are like to me the coolest instrument really they're, like, they're the coolest thing I listen to music like I listen like especially after writing this book like I listen to drums like I'm like oh yeah there's a bass and guitar in here I'm just like listen to that drum beat that's like yeah anyway so I just kind of got obsessed with uh what it, what it must what it's like to be a drummer it's like that's part of my artistic goal as a writer too it kind of gave me distance uh, the other thing about music, of course, is that when you're listening to music, you can't tell what the race is of the person playing it or even the gender, you know, I mean, it's just music, right? And and there's been a long tradition of, I mean, in Kansas City, there's a place called the Mutual Musicians Foundation, which is dedicated to the first uh, interracial union, in, musicians union in America, right? And jazz was a really important like place where black and white musicians work together on stuff and... and um, I felt like that is part of when we get back to that idea of, of McPherson's quote that we talked earlier about transcending the provisional racial identity, that maybe he achieved some of that through the band and through music. I mean, does that seem like a reasonable statement? Yeah, totally. Oh, yeah, totally. I think that's something I was, you know, that I found important, but also Julian finds important in the book is that... um yeah, like when you're playing music with people and you're really serious about it, really involved, like you've done all of you can, all the scheduling and the wrangling and the whatever to get everyone in the room together, you know, that's also that's also a challenge, which is all you have to be like a family because you have to like, you know, be concerned with everyone else's scheduling. But, um, you know, you, once you're in there and you're making making art, you're making music, it does feel like nothing else matters. Like race, race does kind of fall away when you're when you're really communicating and playing with other people in that way. It's a, and it does have that spiritual feeling, which I also feel like um, the spirituality of it is also what Julian craves, but it's also what his bandmates crave. It's this kind of spiritual communion that doesn't have to do with their religion or their faith or any, anything really, other than that they both really want to make the best music possible. And when they do it, they feel their best. And I think that that, that feeling is what kind of that Julian has with his bandmates is why he's able to go through so many things with them. And also why I think he doesn't feel like the only black guy around. Like, I don't think he doesn't mention that so much when he's hanging out with his bandmates playing music because he's not thinking about that. Like he's thinking about um, the music or he's not thinking at all. He's simply like in a, you know, 
kind of in a spiritual like, union or communion with these other guys, these other people that, you know, that he can't get anywhere else. So. So Julian's life is entangled with the lives of his bandmates. And he also is entangled with um, a few women. So can we talk a little bit about his love life? Um, who are his lovers? What do they tell us about him and, and also about Portland? Yeah. Well, you know, like I said, it's, it's predominantly white. <laughs> so, and especially, I mean, I think also it doesn't really say in the book, but I mean, Julian's like hanging out with like a bunch of like musician artist types, which is already kind of even whiter no matter where you are. I mean, as far as like people feel like they have the access or the time or the community to like, like I'm an artist, you know, like, so, um, yeah. So, I mean, most of the opportunity has to, to meet women are at, at venues or other places. So most of them are white. Um, most of them are like the, uh, so going down the kind of people, the first woman he's kind of entangled with in the book is named Anne. And I've always felt like she kind of has the most, like, she's not a musician, but she's very Portlandish. She has the look, she has the tattoos, you know, she likes gardening. So talking about belonging, like Julian can, you know, he feels like he belongs, being with her makes him feel that sort of like he belongs because he's with someone who belongs in the place. She's like the unattainable perfect in ways, in a certain way for him. Um, it seems yeah, like. Um, but uh, can I also ask about, like later in the book, without giving up too many spoilers, like there are some problems with women among the band. Um, and uh, I was interested in the ways that you managed to, I mean, so, in some ways this would be the end of the band if bandmates were sleeping with each other's girlfriends uh, as occurs but somehow it gets resolved. How did you make that choice? Well, I, I guess I thought about what it means to really, like I said, Julian identifies so much with his band. Like these are, his, you know, in many ways, his brothers. Um, and how far you can get away, how many things you can get away with if you have the, actually really do have that belief. Um, because Julian, when Julian believes, he believes hard. So these are his brothers, these are his bandmates. Nothing can tear them apart. You know, they have multiple... And they, of course, they have many reasons or many times where they do almost get torn apart. But this in his mind. He's like, no, like, we um, have to be here. So I think... I mean, to sum it all up, I would say that... I guess I've known people in my life who have been in bands who've had this kind of situation. And I'm like, you know, like, I've known... What on, I, earth, are you, what on earth are you talking yeah, about? Like, None <laughs> like of us it's know not about this. <laughs> yeah. They're in their 20s, you know, they're... They're just living, you know, it's like any decision you make, it's almost like, hey, man, like I had a feeling like, what do you want me to do? It's like, I'm just, you know, let me live, you know, it's like, so you have to kind of contend with that. And I think that's really what it comes down to is like, I, um, is that those things don't always tear people apart. Sometimes it is surprising how someone could do something that you might deem to be bad or horrible from the outside. But when you're in the situation, you know, you can kind of, um, I guess, see all sides of it and you can empathize in a way that kind of lets people, I mean, people have done worse to their bandmates, I guess I can say. And they've, they stick to, you know, there's, there's famous examples and there's just all, you know, everyday examples of people who only play at a bar, you know, once a month with their friends. Like those, like they have their own little shit that they, they contend with so they can do that, can continue to do that. <laughs> so I just want to read, there's this little snippet of description of Anne when she first comes um, in that just made me laugh. Um, you know, Julian says to her, you're so beautiful. And she says, yeah, right. I'm the plainest woman you ever saw. 
And then Julian's, here's his interiority. I looked at her in her weekend gardening clothes and her oversized eyeglasses and considered the owl tattoo she had above her left elbow. Decided she was probably right. She looked like a lot of women in Portland. and That was part of the attraction. She belonged in this world just by being herself. And I was just like, oh, man, every episode of Portlandia that I've seen is flashing before my eyes. <laughs> like, <laughs> And then, you know, Julian is such a he's such a sweet idealist in some ways. Like later in the book, there's this he's kind of watching Peter and Claire and he says they seem to be truly in love, an apple without a worm, like that John Cheever story, real deal love that was almost like salvation, the kind of love I was after. And I was like, he's so sweet, actually. Like he's like a very endearing, funny, um, like sometimes a screw up. But he still, you know, is still per- pursuing this kind of sweet ideal of love. Yeah, I think I think he, that's what he kind of retains, and also why I think of it as like a coming of age story, even though he is, you know, like twenty six in the book. Um, he's had such a sheltered background um, that he's this is his first kind of chance to be a real adult, you know, or to like figure out what he what he's about, and he does he is about love, like you know he. He is about even some of the things he rejects. He kind of says, okay, I'm rejecting all this stuff. But sometimes you reject things wholesale and then you kind of have to pull those little bits and pieces where you're like, oh, no, that really is part of my identity. And I think that Julian really does identify with the fact that people can be genuine, that, you know, you can really be in love, um, that people that people uh, can be redeemed. I think some of those things he feels, even if he does um, kind of lose maybe the the framework for why he believed it in the first place. Jeff, thanks so much for joining us today. And we want to encourage all of our listeners to check out The Weight, which is available now, and we hope to read more from you in the future. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. That's it for the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. This podcast is produced by Ann Knigendorf. Our theme music is composed by Travis Workman. You can subscribe to us by typing fiction slash non slash fiction into the search bar of your favorite podcast app, Please go give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts if you haven't done it yet. You can also listen, find previous episodes, and read excerpts from our interviews at the Literary Hub website, lithub.com, where the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast page is listed under the Lit Hub Radio tab. We'll also post that show page with links to the books we referenced this week on Facebook at FNF Pod, on Twitter at FNF Talk, on Instagram at fiction.nonfiction.podcast. You can find video of our interviews at our own Fiction Nonfiction Podcast YouTube channel and IGTV channel and on our website at fnfpodcast.net, where our back episodes are grouped by topic areas. Happy reading!